You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. It's my honor and privilege to be here with you at Bethel Bible Church this morning to bring the Word of God to us, and I trust that the Lord God will have something for all of us this morning. That America is turning its back on its Christian heritage is all, all too apparent in this post-9-11 world in which we now find ourselves living. What the future holds for American Christians remains to be seen. In so many other parts of the world, especially in the Middle East where I serve, being a Christian choosing to follow Jesus Christ, is simply expected to be accompanied by trouble and conflict. Suffering and persecution come with the calling. My Christian friends outside of America remind me that it is costly to follow Jesus. Yes, discipleship is costly. And my fear is that it's only going to be all the more so in America in the coming days, not less. A number of court decisions in the past decade have reminded us that moral standards and freedoms we once took for granted are now being taken from us. This was brought home to us afresh just recently in a court case of Stormans Incorporated versus Weissman. The Stormans were the Christian owners of a family-run pharmacy in the state of Washington. But in 2007, the state of Washington passed new legislation requiring all pharmacies, whether publicly or privately held, to provide abortion-inducing drugs to their customers, things like Plan B. Kevin Stormans, Christian pharmacist, and other pharmacists of the state filed suit, arguing that the state had no right to force them to sell products that they believed to be against their moral conscience. Although they initially won the case, Planned Parenthood, Some others appealed it and took it to the next district court level. And the Ninth District Court overruled the lower court. Alliance Defending Freedom, a Christian legal ministry, on behalf of the Stormans, attempted to take the case to the Supreme Court. Several umicus briefs were filed on their behalf, including one from 4,000 healthcare professionals and 43 members of Congress. Last month, this past June, the Supreme Court responded. They declined to hear the case, thereby letting the district court ruling against Christian pharmacists like the Stormans to stand. Justice Samuel Samuel Alito was one of the dissenting judges on that, and he had this to say, and I quote, The Ninth Circuit held that the regulations do not violate the First Amendment, and this court does not deem the case worthy of our time. If this is a sign of how religious liberty claims will be treated in the years ahead, those who value religious freedom have cause for great concern." The message this morning is not so much about our loss of freedom as it is about the cost we're going to have to pay for being Christians in this land. The persecution that's coming against Christians in America is going to make everything experienced thus far same Mickey Mouse. The days of easy Christianity for American Christians are over. 
unless we are prepared to face the cost that comes with being a faithful disciple, we are not ready for tomorrow's America. More significantly, unless we are prepared to face the cost of discipleship, we are not prepared for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So will you join me in prayer as we go to the Lord and ask him to speak this morning. Heavenly Father, we bow before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are Lord and Master over this whole world, including our country of America that we love so dearly. I pray this morning, Lord, that we might hear you speak to each one of us in a powerful, in a personal way, through your word. I pray, Lord, that we might realize that you're laying claim to our life and what we are to be and to do as Christians for you. So now, Lord, we lay ourselves before you. We ask you to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is The Cost of Discipleship, and the passage we will be focusing on is Mark chapter 8, verse 31, through chapter 9, verse 1. Mark chapter 8 is a major turning point in Jesus' earthly ministry. Most of our Lord's public ministry is now behind him, and he's setting his sights on going to Jerusalem for the last time, where he knows, though the disciples do not, that crucifixion awaits him. The time has come now to tell the disciples and to prepare them for what follows afterwards. The setting for the story is in a location called Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, at the base of Mount Hermon. Having brought them here, Jesus asked two very important questions that we're probably all familiar with. Who do people say that I am? And then turning to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? The issue, of course, was whether or not they recognized his true identity. And yes, Peter answered correctly, you are the Christ, which was the Greek word for Messiah. But it was one thing to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah of Israel, and another thing to comprehend all that this meant, and especially all that was in store for Jesus. The passage that we're looking at can be analyzed in three parts. In verses 31 through 33, we see Jesus himself modeling the cost of discipleship. In verse 34, Jesus clarifies what the cost of discipleship is, and finally, in verse 35 through the first verse of chapter 9, Jesus points us to the, the eternal reward that awaits the cost of discipleship. So we'll begin by looking at the first part, the cost of discipleship model, in verses 31 through 33. The passage begins by Jesus making an announcement to the disciples that he is, when they get to Jerusalem, he is going to be rejected, he's going to suffer, he'll be killed. So we read um, verse 31, if you're turning your Bibles to Mark 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days to rise again. Well, this was the first of three such announcements that the Lord Jesus made on his way to Jerusalem. He anticipates his trial before the Sanhedrin, and the charge of blasphemy that they will make against him. Now, none of this has happened yet, 
in the setting of the story, but if we could kind of scroll ahead to later on in the book, especially if we were to go to Mark chapter 14, verse 61 through 64, we can actually see that scene of his rejection. He's on trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. Verse 61, but he remained silent and he made no answer. <clears throat> Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments and he said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Well, Jesus knew long in advance that that was going to happen and also that he would be crucified. And now the disciples are hearing him speak of that, although they, this is very difficult in their imagination to grasp. <clears throat> Peter responds to this by rebuking the Lord. He doesn't like what he hears, verse 32 and 33. And he said this plainly, and so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, the Lord rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now why did the Peter rebuke the Lord Jesus? It did not, what he heard from the Lord did not fit his theology about what Israel's Messiah was expected to be. They expected freedom from Roman rule and for him to take up his rule as king over Israel, to take over the country, to be a king, and they would rule with him. All of this talk about suffering raises the question about suffering one may face in doing God's will. For Jesus, this was the suffering of the cross, that which only he could do. Yet Jesus models the cost of discipleship for those original disciples, as well as for all of us today who wish to follow him. To what extent are we willing to go in order to be faithful to Jesus as our Lord? You see, Jesus models what he wants us to know, that discipleship is costly, but the eternal reward is worth the cost. The second part of the, the passage, verse 34, we see the cost of discipleship clarified. Now this is primarily going to be family talk. It comes about in response to Peter, but then to all those disciples, although the Lord is going to allow the crowd to hear it as well, but it's mainly for his disciples. Verse 34, <clears throat> and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and then take up his cross and follow me. To deny himself, that's the first step. And we need to understand that in light of Peter's interaction with Jesus. Peter was setting his mind not on God's interest, but his own. He relied merely on his own human limited thinking in his evaluation. In calling them to deny oneself, Jesus is challenging them to set aside their own agenda, what that is, what they might wish would happen or what they think ought to be done, and to get on God's agenda. <clears throat> Tim Keller, in his excellent work, The King's Cross, uh, makes this statement, and I quote, if your agenda is the end, 
then Jesus is just the means. You're using him. But if Jesus is the king, you cannot make him a means to your end. You can't come to a king negotiating. You lay your sword at a king's feet and you say, command me. If you try to negotiate instead, if you say, I'll obey you if, you aren't recognizing him as king. Let me make some clarifications about this idea of denying oneself. First of all, I think a negative aspect here, to deny yourself doesn't mean that you deny yourself all the right to any fun in life. That's not what Jesus is after. Positively, to deny yourself is to submit to what God wants you to think and to do. And that requires a transformed mind by the Word of God. We all need to be in the Word of God on a daily basis so that we will think the way God thinks and know what God wants done. A third clarification, that to deny oneself is not a step in gaining salvation. Otherwise, you would have to also say that taking up one's cross is a step to salvation, which we'll now talk about. And I think you'll see why that would not make sense. To understand what Jesus meant by taking up one's cross, we need to understand in light of the Roman world. We keep in mind the disciples have not witnessed Jesus on the cross at this point, you know, in the gospel account. They have certainly seen other people crucified. It was a common Roman practice. James Edwards, in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, writes... An image of extreme repugnance, the cross was an instrument of cruelty, pain, dehumanization, and shame. The cross symbolized hated Roman oppression and was reserved for the lowest social classes. It was the most visible and omnipresent aspect of Rome's terror apparatus, designed especially to punish criminals and quash slave rebellions. In 71 BC, the Roman general Crassus defeated the slave rebel Spartacus and crucified him and 6,000 of his followers on the Apian Way between Rome and Capua. A century later in Mark's day, Nero would crucify and burn Christians who were falsely accused of setting fire to Rome. So what did the cross mean to these disciples? If you saw a person carrying a cross in that day, you knew they were as good as dead. They were on their way to their death, being crucified. So just as their Lord suffered, the disciples would find that following him is costly. Like those made to carry a cross, they would expect to suffer rejection and shame. They even must be prepared to suffer physically and perhaps even in martyrdom. Jesus is talking here about martyrdom, after all, the willingness to die for the sake of following him. What he is calling for is nothing less than a total commitment to him without reservation. I have the privilege of working in the Middle East and I have for a number of years. It's a joy and a privilege to know Arab believers that have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great tragedy of our day that the civil war is raging in the country of Syria before this really kicked up in the high gear, I was going in and out of Syria on a regular basis for several years. We had a training group in Damascus, Syria. You see a picture of some of them uh, here. And these are a group of 
Arabs that <clears throat> believers had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of them came from a Christian background, meaning their families were Christian. Others among them had actually come out of a Muslim background and had come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him as their savior. So we had kind of both groups in that. One of the girls in the group, I'll call her Rima, though that's not her real name, but a real person, and actually pictured here, came from a Muslim family. We call Muslim background believers. But Rima's family did not know that she was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a hidden secret. Everybody in our group, of course, knew it, but not her family. One day, one of her siblings found a copy of the Injil, the Arabic word for New Testament, among her belongings. And she went and she shared that with the, the rest of the family. So the secret was out. The family got Rima. They took her out on the street and they beat her to a bloody pulp and left her there wounded and bleeding on the curb of the street. And they threatened her that if she did not renounce her faith in Jesus Christ that she professed, they would kill her. The other believers in the group had to rescue Rima, help her escape out of the country to protect her life from her own family. You know, I, I, t I feel like sometimes I live in two worlds. You know, I, I live in America on the one hand, but I'm going to the Middle East all the time, and I'm seeing firsthand what the cost of discipleship means for a lot of people in other parts of the world, especially the Middle East. Yes, discipleship is costly, but as we shall see, the eternal reward is worth the cost. The third section of our this morning's passage is verses 835 through 91, we see the cost of discipleship in light of eternal reward. It's one thing to watch Jesus, to admire him, even to believe in him. But now in verses 35 through the first verse of chapter 9, he is calling for a response. Here Jesus will spell out the implications for those that seek to follow him. Jesus knows that some of his followers might wish to avoid suffering at any cost in following him and thus to risk nothing for him. We might say they want the goodies, but no inconvenience or hardship. So what we find here is some of the strongest language that Jesus ever uses in communicating with the disciples. And the first point he wants to make is that it's foolish to save one's life now just to lose it later. So we read verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Twice in that verse, we see the word save. And I, my fear is that for so many of us, when we see that word save or saved or saving or salvation in the New Testament, we might tend to think one thing, and that is being saved from the penalty of sin. But I would suggest here that that's not what Jesus is actually talking about. It's not about gaining eternal salvation. We first need to look at what the, the word, the general meaning behind this word, the Greek word sozo, which means to, to save, a very common word in the New Testament. It has a general meaning of to deliver or to rescue from danger or to keep from harm. So it depends on what kind of context you're looking at as to what meaning it might have. We see a good example of the more general meaning of the word in Matthew 8:25. This was an account where Jesus was out with the disciples on the, the lake. 
The storm was raging. It looked like they weren't going to make it. Of all things, the Savior is asleep in the boat, and the disciples are in great distress. They think the boat's going to go under, and they're all drowned. Matthew 8, 25. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Obviously, here we have the same word, save, but they're not thinking of their sins being forgiven. They're thinking about the Lord rescuing them from danger, that they'll be delivered in that moment. So I'd like to give you three reasons why I think that when we see this thing about uh, saving one's life and losing one's life, that it doesn't mean eternal salvation from sin. It's not how to be saved and go to heaven. First of all, this, the phrase, to save one's life, literally it's in the Greek, it's to save one's suke, one's soul, but the soul can be a metaphor for the life, used seven times in the New Testament. It always means to stay alive physically. A good example of this is in Mark chapter 3, verse 4. Jesus is healing a person on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders objected to what he was doing, and so we read in Mark 3, 4, And Jesus said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? And they were silent. This is the same exact phrase that we have in Mark 8, and yet here it's, it's the opposite of killing a person. To save a life would be to keep them alive physically. The second reason why I don't think save in the context of Mark 8 is talking about salvation from the penalty of sin is the context. Context arose from Peter's objection to the Lord's announcement that the Lord was going to be put to death. He was going to give up his life. But martyrdom is never a precondition for salvation from sin. A third reason why I don't think save means salvation from the penalty of sin in Mark 8 is when we look at the parallel account to this passage in Luke, this will be Luke 9, verse 23, we read an added word there that's not in Mark's gospel. In Luke 9, 23, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So cross-bearing is a a daily commitment that one makes. It's not something that's repeated. So to conclude, to save one's life means to protect it from death. That would be to avoid martyrdom. Jesus is using an extreme example, no doubt, but this implies the avoidance of all suffering of a lesser sort. So let's talk for a moment about this philosophy of saving one's life only to lose it later. As we said, it's not talking about losing one's salvation. It's not talking about the loss of eternal life. The point, however, is to lose one's life in the sense of the way it will turn out, whether it will lead to a life of ruin, a life that is essentially destroyed. When and how? Well, we get a clue, I think, for the context. If our drift on down to verse 38 of Mark 8, it speaks of the Son of Man coming again in the glory of his fathers. And that's a reference to the second coming of Christ. We'll take this up in a moment. That'll be a time when the Lord returns in the second coming, and we as Christians will face a judgment that the Lord's going to examine us. So that's the time when either we save, our life is saved, has something to show for it, is rescued, is delivered, or we lose out. 
So to lose out in verse 35, it's to have your life end up in ruin with nothing to show for it after you stand before the Lord Jesus at his return. And you have to live with that forever. We could even say it costs to follow Jesus, but it costs more not to. The Christian who flippantly says, hey, as long as I've got my ticket to heaven, I'm happy. That Christian simply has not come to grips with Jesus or the Word of God. He is very deceived. And should he carelessly live out his life on earth, he will come to have great regret. How we live out our life on earth, being faithful to the Lord, pursuing a life of true discipleship, matters a great deal. And the converse is also true. Whoever loses his life, that is, if he were to be martyred, will save it. Save it in what sense? Well, he'll rescue it. He will ensure its safe outcome. A life of faithfulness to Christ will result in gaining everything that is important for eternity. And I think here we're talking about rewards that a Christian receives for faithfulness. Even the opportunity to reign with Christ, something that's not promised all Christians, by the way. The second point the Lord makes in verse 36 and 37, that it's foolish to gain the present world at the expense of losing out in the future. So now Jesus is going to take the logic a step further. Imagine that somebody not only foolishly uh, protects their life from all suffering from martyrdom, but even goes the other direction of trying to gain everything they possibly could you know, out of this world. I have no idea what it means to gain the whole world. That's, sometimes we used to talk about all the gold in Fort Knox, and you know, that was almost unimaginable wealth. Back in the 1970s, when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, I had a part-time job to help support our family during those days, working at the First National Bank in uh, downtown Dallas. And I worked in the Accounts Reconciliation Department, we had a lot of large accounts and some very um, wealthy customers. Then I had to reconcile their accounts, make sure everything was balanced and checks were accounted for, etc. Some of the accounts we handled were from the, the Hunt family. You may be familiar with the name H.L. Hunt, a man who had made a great wealth in the discovery of oil, and his son's Bunker Hunt and Lamar Hunt. Bunker and Lamar Hunt, they were very wealthy already from the family oil fortune, also had created great wealth in the horses that they had invested in. But then they tried to corner the world silver market. They, they accumulated, and I double-checked this figure, it's astounding, they accumulated an estimated 6.8 million pounds, that's pounds, not ounces, nearly 7 million pounds of silver. Prices of silver's futures contracts and silver bullion rose from $11 an ounce in September 1979 to over $50 an ounce a few months later in January of 1980. I was working at the bank at that time, and I remember everybody scurrying about, trying to uh, help them check their accounts, find out what's going on. But eventually all this collapsed. Not only did the, the hunts lose millions of dollars, but they faced criminal charges of wrongfully manipulating the market. They were fined millions of dollars and eventually filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. 
Well, we think about trying to gain the whole world. You know, what would it profit a man if you, you could do that? Couldn't even capture the world's silver market here. So what's forfeited in verse 36? It says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The word forfeit could also be translated to suffer loss. And we see the use of the same word over in 1 Corinthians 3.15, a passage in which the Apostle Paul speaks about our works as believers being evaluated by the Lord after our life is over with. And he says in 1 Corinthians 3.15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Same word, translated forfeit in Mark 8. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So when Christ returns <clears throat> in glory at his second coming, everything will be transformed in preparation for him to reign as king over the world. At the outset, however, all of those who, of us who belong to Christ will stand before him to give an account of how we've lived out our life here on earth. The purpose will be for him to examine us to determine if we were faithful and hence to reward us for the work that we've done. If our works are worthless, they burn up and we suffer the loss. We have nothing to show for. We might have very little to show for ourselves and therefore little reward. However, to suffer one's life, that is one's life to suffer loss, to forfeit one's life, is to end up impoverished at the judgment seat of Christ. The lesson is that you can try to have everything in this life, but be impoverished in Christ's coming kingdom. Just to clarify, though, Jesus is not necessarily saying it's wrong to have a lot in terms of this world's riches. I don't want to be misunderstood. Jesus' point pertains to the man who would pursue the world's riches to the exclusion of true and costly discipleship. That's an important distinction that needs to be made. So to summarize, if I may, verses 34 through 37, Jesus is calling for a total commitment to him. Nothing less than total surrender and a willingness to pay any price to follow him, even if that were to mean suffering, even if it were to mean martyrdom. Now, how we choose to respond to his demand on our life will have consequences that go beyond this life. If we try to save our life in the here and now, that is to protect it from suffering, from martyrdom, we might end up losing out in the long run with little or nothing to show for how we lived here on earth. We could forfeit what we might have had as God's reward, and that will be for all eternity. So now in verses 38 to the first verse of chapter 9, the Lord will show that discipleship, though costly, will really matter when he returns. Let's read verse 38 of Mark 8. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. <clears throat> This, of course, uh, coming in glory looks at the, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, in this verse, the Lord speaks about whether or not he'll be ashamed of those of us uh, that are Christians. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. When we look at the parallel account in Matthew, he adds another side of the coin, you might say, to that, which I think kind of gives us a better grasp of what the Lord, what's really involved here. 
So looking over to Matthew's account of this passage, and I'm looking at Matthew 16, 27, it says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So here we have uh, rewards in view. <clears throat> He'll repay every man according to his deeds. Now, the good news out of that is that whatever you've done for Christ, that's good, will not go unrewarded. The Lord knows it. The Lord is faithful. He will reward you. On the other hand, there will be some that will suffer loss. We might say, why would that be? It could be a number of reasons. This passage alone gives us at least three. Perhaps they sought to save their life on earth. No suffering, unwilling to be a martyr. Secondly, they wanted other things in life, the riches of this world. Or third, they did not want to see, excuse me, they did not want to have to face the ridicule of the world and hence were ashamed of Christ. A clarification, though, that Christ might be ashamed of us does not mean that he'll reject us or send us to hell. Don't read something in there that wasn't intended. But our goal should be to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful slave. And finally, we come to chapter 9, verse 1, which in Matthew's account, it's part of the same chapter. In, in Mark's account, it, we actually go into the next chapter, but it's part of the same passage, I believe. So verse 1, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now we typically think of the kingdom of God as something that will be fully inaugurated after the return of Christ. So what is the Lord trying to say? That some people that haven't even died yet are going to see the kingdom. Well, I think we can understand it better by looking once again at the parallel account in Matthew's Gospel. So looking to Matthew 16, 28, it says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So it's not just the kingdom, it's seeing the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So I think that clarifies what we're talking about here, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You see, this is explained by the following paragraph in both Mark's account and Matthew's account, where we have the story about Jesus taking three of the disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He took Peter, he took James, and take John. Peter, the very one that had rebuked him. And when they were on that Mount of Transfiguration, what happened was that Jesus suddenly wasn't the same Jesus anymore. He went from being an ordinary-looking Jewish man to suddenly being in radiant white light in a way they've never seen him before. What was actually happening was they were getting a preview, we might say, of the way that Jesus will look like when the kingdom fully comes about. And one day, all of us who are believers will have the privilege to see the Lord Jesus in that kingdom glory. Well, I think the purpose of this, of them, the Lord allowing them to see him like that, is that it sheds um, a lot of emphasis and um, understanding to the passage we've been studying. Because we've been studying about the cost of discipleship and the issue of suffering uh, for G in following Jesus. In Jesus' own life, there was suffering first, followed by kingdom glory. And that's true for us as well. There is suffering in this life, and if we're faithful, there is kingdom glory that awaits us. Not exactly the same as Jesus, but in a parallel fashion, nevertheless. 
So this caused them to understand that everything that the Lord had taught in Mark 8, 31 through 38, about the cost of discipleship would indeed be worth it. Discipleship is costly, but the eternal reward is worth the cost. As we look back on this passage from Mark, Jesus has set the bar very high. But each of us needs to know the Lord's expectation for those who would be his faithful disciples. The issue is not the gaining or losing of eternal life. That is a free gift, not based on one's earning it or deserving it, but simply as a result of faith. But eternal rewards and the possibility of reigning with Christ upon his return are not to be taken lightly. A wasted life with nothing to show for itself is a sad fate, especially if it prompts one to a sense of shame for Christ and his words. Discipleship is costly, but the eternal reward is worth the cost. And finally, I'd like to draw out a few practical lessons that come out of our, from our study this morning. And I point to four things. First, Jesus really does want to be the Lord in our life. And he is asking for nothing less than total surrender to him. He uses the case of martyrdom as something of an extreme example so that we will grasp the claim that he's making on us. But this also obviously implies that any lesser suffering we face, whether it be in the form of suffering ridicule, of suffering financially, or suffering socially, must be faithfully born if we are to be committed disciples. A second lesson is that Jesus gave this teaching in response to Peter's own challenge about the Lord being killed. What Jesus said about costly discipleship was meant to spur Peter into making a total commitment to his Lord. Though it is applicable to us, we also know that from the study of other scripture that discipleship is a growing process. Total surrender, total commitment is something that comes as a result of growing in the Lord. The Christian life is one of a growing childlike faith that leads to spiritual adulthood. You grow by feeding on God's Word and responding in obedience. Without a healthy diet of God's Word, you will fail to grow as a believer, much less make a total commitment of your life to the Lord Jesus. I'd like to put in a plug at this point that here at Bethel Bible Church, you can certainly go to church on Sunday. You can hear Pastor Ross preach a great sermon. You can also be in a life group, and that's very good. But there, your life really needs more than that. And I would, my hope, and for all of us here, is that we would have a Bible study to be a part of, whether it's a men's study group, or a women's Bible study, or women's group. And a number of those are being offered. You just need to take the step of getting involved in one. Because if you don't have good intake of the Word of God and accountability of other believers around you, you're never going to grow to be a faithful and committed disciple. A third lesson. <clears throat> we have an excellent team of elders and pastors at Bethel. We need to continually pray for them. We need them to speak the Word of God to us and not hold back. We need them to keep us challenged and accountable. So let's do our part to encourage them and rally around them as they call us to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth, although we talk about total surrender, and I think for a lot of people that's kind of like a big ticket uh, item, it's kind of hard to get your mind around what that really might mean, 
God is just as concerned about the little steps of faith in your life. Often it is the little decisions we make on a daily basis that leads to Christian maturity. The decision, for instance, not to cheat on a test or to cheat in business. The decision not to allow ourselves to be drawn into an improper relationship with a person of the opposite sex. The decision not to commit adultery. Or the decision to honor God in our marriages and not resort to divorce. Making the right decisions is also a part of what it means to deny yourself. In closing, if I could tell you what the stock market might be six months from now, a year from now, even two years from now, would you be willing to pay me for that kind of information? Better yet, if I could tell you about a way that you would be guaranteed to have a 60% return on your money, would you be willing to pay me a 5% commission for that information? Of course, the truth is, I can't do that. And no one else can either. But even if I could, that would only benefit you so long. Because once you die, you don't even take one penny with you. Not even one penny. However, I can tell you about something that's better than a 60% return on your investment. If you will deny yourself, get on God's agenda, take up your cross and follow Him, whatever it might cost you, you will end up with the best investments you ever made in your life. You will save your life in the long run. That is, you'll have something to show for the life you lived on earth after Jesus returns and you have stood before him to give an account of your life. Furthermore, you won't have to fear tomorrow's America because you will already have given up your life and your possessions. God is very much alive and the safest to believe safest place to be is in the pursuit of his agenda. Yes, according to Jesus, discipleship is costly, but the eternal reward is worth the cost. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we bow before you right now in prayer to acknowledge, Lord Jesus, that you are just alive right now as you were when you spoke those words of Mark 8, 31, 2,000 years ago to Peter and the others, announcing the, own, the suffering you yourself would go through, and then turn around and telling that just as you gave a total commitment of yourself to the will of the Father, you're asking a total commitment from us to you. I pray right now, Lord, uh, each one of us in the room would make a response to you that you want us to make. For some of us, Lord, that may mean decisions we need to make in our life. Maybe it's about things we're doing that we shouldn't be doing. Maybe it's about a decision we need to start doing that we haven't been doing. Lord, I pray that we could um, take um, advantage of the opportunity to grow in your word, to be accountable to other believers in the body of Christ, and to become the faithful disciples you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.